Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club podcast. It is a podcast, an audio book club, in which we talk about a book, sometimes two every month. This is perhaps going to be the last episode. I uh, am Aubrey Hicks, um, and I was, until a few weeks ago, the executive director of the Bedrosian Center, and um, I have an opportunity to work with a ASU-wide center on the future of equality, the Difference Engine, and so I will be leaving USC. Um, But today, we've already scheduled our conversation on the 1619 Project, which I think is quite important. So we're going to go ahead and do one last episode, and then we'll see what happens. All right, with me today, uh, I'm going to start with Yesenia Hunter. Can you tell our listeners who you are? Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Yesenia Navarrete Hunter. I'm an assistant professor of history um, in at Heritage University in Washington State, and I study the interactions and the entanglements of immigrants, indigenous people, and white settlers in the early 20th century. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. And then I'm going to go around the screen that I am looking at. Uh, I assume you have different views, but uh, Lavana Lewis, can you tell our listeners uh, who you are? Uh, good afternoon. I'm Lavana Lewis. I'm the Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion and a teaching professor of public policy at the Seoul Price School of Public Policy and delighted to be here. Thanks so much. And Jen Bravo. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Aubrey. I am an alum of the USC Price School back before it was called the Price School. And I now work in climate resilience here in Los Angeles. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, last and definitely not least is David Sloan. Hi, I'm David Sloan, and I, along with uh, Lavana, am a professor at the Salt Price School of Public Policy. Um, I also have an appointment in the Department of History at USC, uh, and I teach a whole bunch of different things, including things that often come up against the kind of issues that we find all throughout this book. Thank you, all of you, so much for um spending at least part of your winter break reading (laughs) for this conversation. Um, 1619 Project, a new origin story. Um, I'm guessing that maybe David has a little summary prepared. Indeed, David does have a summary prepared. I wouldn't let my uh, love of Aubrey go away now that she's somewhere else. Um, 1619 tells the story of America in all its pain, suffering, glory, and hope. In 18 chapters written by eminent journalists and academics, the book chronicles how white America has systematically created and sustained political, economic, and social structures to oppress Black Americans. The chapters and the evocative poems and stories interlaced to accompany them, though, also tell the story of Black Americans' persistence, struggle, dedication to family, community, and yes, very importantly, the American ideal of life, liberty, and happiness in a democratic society. Ultimately, the book retells the story of America, demanding a place in that narrative for Black Americans, whether slaves, sharecroppers, or the president, 
in the Anna and the Ed editor Hannah Jones uh, makes a convincing argument that Black Americans deserve reparation because of their contributions to this society. At times, the book is a little too redundant for me. I would expect some redundancy, but this gets a little out of hand every once in a while. And perhaps some of the chapters are densely written to be as accessible as one might like. But the overall story is so compelling. And some chapters, such as music, church, politics, sugar, and capitalism, so remarkable. The book is ultimately impossible to ignore or to stop reading. May its message resonate throughout American society. Very nicely done, David, as always. Yes, thank you. So let's start with um, the project itself. So um, Nicole Hannah-Jones in the prologue does tell us about this, but um, this is a project that came out through the New York Times Magazine in 20. 19 as an anniversary of sorts. Um, what was your relationship with the project before, before the book came out? I am a subscriber of the New York times and uh, had this amazing moment when that arrived on my doorstep. <clears throat> I had the chance to read a lot of it um, at that time and was just amazed at how they had done what they had been able to do and pull together. Uh, the one thing I would say is that we now have an even better version of that. That is, that really is remarkably expanded, um, particularly because of those poems and stories and all those other things that I think are so evocative of issues that come through. But my initial response was through the news. Um, I can speak up. This is Yesenia. Um, when the project first came out, I was intrigued by it, but I wasn't, um, I, this is, this might sound like a funny statement. I wasn't awake on Twitter. <laughs> I wasn't as active on Twitter as I am now. Um, so I didn't hear as much of the, the buzz or the responses from, um, you know, other historians, their critiques, and I certainly did not hear the buzz of the backlash until probably 2020 and 2021 when I started to really hear about the backlash. But uh, when the project first came out, um, I did go on the site and look through the materials. I thought it was really like visually um, beautiful to be able to scroll through and of course haunting to scroll through the materials um, online. Um, so that's a little bit about kind of when it first came out, that was my relationship to it was mostly as a viewer and as a graduate student, um, wondering about public, public history and how we do this kind of work. So it was interesting to me from that perspective. Yeah, Yesenia, it's funny that you mentioned Twitter because a lot of my interaction with Nicole Hannah-Jones and this project is from my experience on Twitter and the fact that I've sort of over the last five or so years, like really cultivated a, a, a group of people that I follow on Twitter to educate myself, to, you know, to learn about things that, that I didn't know enough about. And so learning about it from her and seeing her experience, you know, the public face of her experience, what she shared as this was published, and then as they uh, managed the backlash. And then as the book was coming out, it was actually really lovely arc to see. You could see how much hard 
and soul and just hard work went into this really fascinating project. So I don't, I guess I don't have much to add to that. Um, but I guess for me personally, obviously, um, just being able to dive into it, to the story of people who look like me and to see that those stories be made visible um, in kind of multiple, multiple media spaces has been very um, both overwhelming and also energizing. Um, but I think I, where I'm resting at right now and I'll be honest, where I'm spending more time than anything else is really in the backlash. And to to really kind of think about just how hard people are willing to fight for the stories not to be told, to maintain levels of comfort for them, even if it means uh, discomfort and making these us invisible again. And so just to 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 read this book and see it. Uh, in real time, I say has been has been um, empowering, exhausting, and um, I'll stop there before I get into too much more of this. So yeah, thanks. You know, I think for me, the watching, I mean, the backlash, but the um, this this arc that takes some, you realize how important our public history is and all the different ways we tell it when there is a backlash like this, this is, um, this project, you know, um, sort of re sparked, you know, this anti CRT, um, in education movement that's going on in conservative circles right now. Um, and so to be able to, to sort of see how this is really expanding a lot of people's um, ideas and knowledge of history um, in, in ways that, you know, I didn't realize when Nicole Hannah Jones first started talking about the project on Twitter, you know, how, like, I didn't quite grasp the um, immensity yeah, I think that that's there's an immensity to the story and almost an immensity of um I don't even know the right the right word to describe it, but it's a feeling that I had repeatedly as I was reading the book, which is that my entire education in this country, up until the point where I really was able to take control of my own education, was to reinforce these false narratives that that we tell about ourselves, these sort of traditional comforting um, origin stories that are fundamentally untrue, but also deeply fundamentally important to the concept of like a national identity and the, the, the strength and the vehemence with which people will fight to hold on to those mythologies about ourselves and just thinking about like all my education. Oh, I'm reading about the cotton gin. I know I'm, I'm reading about, you know, um, various rebellions in time and how none of the important connections were ever made during my education. None of the important meaning or explanation of why something mattered or why something came about to be the way it was, was, was shocking and 
at the same time, a bit exhilarating that this book did such a beautiful job, I think, of pulling a bunch of threads together that or sort of weaving a bunch of, of threads together that in my education as an as a white American had been specifically um, kept apart, sort of specifically taught as little distinct moments in time or little things that like this was just an anomaly, right? In our in our broad, beautiful history of, of the freedom of what it means to be an American. And so for me, it's the weaving together of all of those threads that is probably the most special thing about this project and about this book. So let's just step back. You know, I mean, I think we've, we've thrown a number of ideas out and it's good to get a sense of where we were and how we sort of came to this project, um, as, you know, as audience. Um, so what, you know, we have, we're, we, we are lucky to have two historians on with us today. Um, and so I think there are a couple of things like, um, number one, you know, the obvious is, is why 1619? Um, you know, I think anybody familiar with the project will know, but I think it's important to talk about again. Um, and secondly, you know, this idea of origin, um, how do we have multiple origins stories within, within our history? And how is that okay? You know, I think in some ways, how do historians do their job? Why is, why 1619? Why is it important to historians? So I grew up as a doctoral student <clears throat> at the time that like half the books in the, that are cited in this book are, were being published. And so Gary Nash, all these people, Eugene, uh, Genovese, all these people who were upending and taking on what had been the standard interpretation of the American origin story. Even the Edmund Morgans and others who were not as radical as the first two, but who were trying to get us to think differently about what was going on. And so um, 1619 didn't come as a surprise to me. It was part of my education as a doctoral student, and even as an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin in the history department. But what the book does, so be, I mean, 1619 is when the first boatload of slaves arrives in Virginia. And it's an important moment. It's the, the year before the pilgrims show up in Massachusetts. It's, it's a moment of extraordinary change in what we will consider to be the colonial experience in the United States. Um, but what's so critical about it, I think, and why it's such an extraordinary book is that that the date is both important and unimportant in the sense that it's a date. It's, it's a date, you know, and there have been several tweets. Uh, I just followed Yesenia on Twitter. Uh, there have been several tweets reminding us that, you know, slaves were coming into Florida as early as 1580s. Uh, and that there probably were slaves in Mexico even before that. And, and we, I live in Mexico. Uh, what was then Mexico? And so it, it, 1619 is sort of an arbitrary moment, but it's a very important moment, partially because of what it represents about what happened afterwards. And the afterwards is the great brilliance of the book, to my mind, is that it allows us to watch step by step as this origin story plays out 
the development of chattel slavery instead of in, indentured servitude, the matriarchal position of, of black children versus the patriarchal position of white children, the capitalism of the agriculture of the South, rather than the way I was taught as a as a as a young man that the industrial North used its capitalism to subdue those agrarian Southerners. And here you have, you know, more millionaires in Mississippi than any place else in the country. And so it's an extraordinary story is what, to me, 69 is important. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to diminish it in any way, but what's really powerful about the book is how it's a platform to really talk about this, this uh, counter origin story. And since I'm the second historian in the room, I'll talk a little bit about just um, a conversation actually that I had with my students this morning, and it's about how we perform memory and the importance of um, understanding origin stories. And uh, one of the students called it the mythology. And I think um, that's an interesting way to to say this, because um, as um, Jen pointed out earlier, is that we've all heard you know, speckles, like small slivers of these stories, but we've never really seen them framed and braided together in a way that really discusses, um, joins the the history from the past. Like these are direct lineage, a direct DNA, you know, um, reason why we're experiencing this today is because of this moment or these moments in time. Um, So I think it's important for us um, as historians to acknowledge that there are these multiple stories that the like uh, David just said, it's you know it's a date, it's an important time frame for us to think about. I think another reason for that is because we are performing memory. Every time we are engaging in our social world and living the everyday life, we are reenacting um, the things, the rhythms that we've been born into. And so uh, it's important for us as a society to recognize that lineage and those big rhythms that um, perhaps need some disrupting in order for us to make change. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I remember I was involved in a church group that was like, let's lament over this moment. We did a lot, a lot of lamenting, but, you know, what is it that actually brings about change? How can we disrupt these big rhythms and cycles that are harmful and traumatic and uh, reinforcing white supremacy? Um, if we're if we're not acknowledging what that history actually looks like, um, so I think there's there's also that element of uh, not only as historians recognizing the moment, but as a society uh, understanding that we're we're replaying a part in this um, in these rhythms that we're part of. I love that, Senia. It's it reminds me at the very beginning on the first page of the book, I wrote myself a reminder. Um, and it's the James Baldwin quote, not everything is faced, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it is faced. And that's sort of what this book is for me. This book is saying, let's take a look at what's existing in the world. And actually, many of the chapters are, are structured in this way, which I liked. You start with something in the present day, and then you say, why? Why is it like this? And you actually start unpacking or sort of like, like you know, pulling apart the threads of this giant messy nest and getting back to the root causes of so many things, which we don't love to do in our society. We like, we like band-aids on things. We, we have a hard time with root causes, but um, it's exactly, it's exactly what you were saying. We, we reenact and reperform these narratives over time and getting to the root 
uh, and re- redefining what are our narratives, what do we want to be reenacting, what do we want to be performing that is more authentic and more true and can get us to a place where we can really face some of this hard stuff and reconcile it. So I am not a historian. I'm political science. And what struck me again is, is the reminder that this is not an accidental story. It is intentional. It is the cumulative impact of decisions that were made by people elected and appointed to represent the interests of some, obviously. Um, and so I I talk all the time about the fact that I love, I, I do public policy because public policy can change the rules of the game overnight. And what struck me is how over and over and over again, the rules just reinforce the existing white supremacy and locking in disadvantage such that people can feel very comfortable, you know, uh, saying that these, I mean, people would just try harder, these things wouldn't be a problem, but to really ignore an infrastructure that says you're not part of, you're part of us when we can count you as a person and when we can count you as property, right? But the, this whole idea of respect for persons was, um, it was very damning in, in the sense that um, our policy, at least as it relates to black people, uh, did not really fully uh, think about the consequences of what we were doing to people. It's like, you're free, you just have to start over and just do whatever you can with what you can. And so like I said, it, so for me, the, the public policy piece, again, I, I think um, the, the fact that there are so many places where people don't know what public policy is, but to really appreciate how the role of government and the decisions that we make both to act or refusing to act have significant consequences on um, various populations, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. And so we can see right now that we're, we're having conversations about we don't need these types of um equity-centered policies, because again, everything's equal, which I say, which is again, kind of the the moment that we're in. And so we'll see what our policymakers do in this kind of current climate, but we can see another iteration of these kind of uh, topics coming up on the agenda. Aubrey, I'm going to jump in. I have like six things to say, but I'm going to say one. Um, And that is, uh, take us back to the British Museum that we read a while ago. And uh, the fact that the British paid off their debt to the slave owners of uh, the British Empire in 2015. And we were reminded on page 464 that the U.S. also paid, uh, compensated, they didn't pay, they compensated people for their loss of property, but they didn't, of course, give any money to the property itself. And uh, this goes back to Bavana's. point that in some sense, this is public policy. These are policies that are made and and enforced. Uh, Are you going to give everybody 40 acres and a mule? Are you going to give a bunch of money to the plantation owner so he can recreate the plantation system? That's exactly right. And at every level, at every level, in every moment of history, these were policy decisions that were being made. Yeah, I feel like we need to sit with a lot of this sometimes. I know, but we... um don't have all that much time today. Um, you know, I think there's there's something that that you're talking about too that I, I found really beautiful about um, 
the whole project from when it came out in the newspaper to the podcast that they released to that it's um, really holistic. So, you know, you're, it's interdisciplinary um, and it takes a look at a large chunk of our time to see um, how all of these connections how everything is braided together, as Yusinia said, which I just is a beautiful metaphor. Um, I, I want to start with, I mean, I, I'm saying start. We've already been talking about this for a while. Why do I keep saying start? Um, the first chapter on democracy. Um, and I think the thing that struck me so well is that it did go back to so many of these other books that we've been talking about the last couple of years, you know, um, Lavana mentioned locked in. So it reminds me of, of the book that we read, um, about, um, from a USC law professor. And of course I'm forgetting reproducing racism, reproducing racism. Yes. Thank you. Um, to the British museums, which is about, um, you know, how museums are, are performing the memory of history and how we we keep telling, you know, this sort of very biased story and, and trying to make it objective when it's really, you know, this mythology about how, you know, we really are good, really. It was the savages, you know, um, that sort of story over and over and over again. Um, and reading about the backlash to reconstruction in the very first chapter and seeing it play out in real time with a backlash to, you know, some stories of history, you know, um, it's just so, um, such a holistic sense of what and who America is and how, um, intricately woven capitalism and racism and white supremacy are to who we think we are. That for me was, I guess, um, <laughs> what was laughable throughout. I mean, I, maybe laughable is the, the wrong word, but to, um, to really kind of think about the fact that um, we are to be feared when we've, when we've been the ones that have been uh, targeted, to think about the fact that we're at a moment in time when we think it's more important to protect people from things that may make them feel bad than to deal with the destructive and bad circumstances that so many uh, folks are having to to address or to live with day in and day out. And so, so this... Um, I mean, I, the, the idea that we can't, as a country, handle tough things, you know, is 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 in some ways demoralizing because we're saying that we, you know, the the classic line, you can't handle the truth. I mean, what is it about us that wants to put a magnifying glass on everybody else, but that doesn't want to turn a mirror on our own um, insufficiencies and giving ourselves a chance to grow? Right. It's like um, I can remember very clearly my sister asking long ago, I wonder where America would be if it wasn't so invested in protecting whiteness. 
right? If we let people be creative, if we let people have imagination, if we let people be fully recognized for their, for our humanity, where would we be? And so the idea that we would try to legislate that away, again, is very, is very demoralizing because I, I think it's because the argument has no teeth, right? I mean, this idea to, to be able to defend the indefensible is what people want to avoid. And so we're just going to put a big magic eraser or whatever it was, the men in black that can make people's imagination just be blanked out. Let's just do that to the country and see how that works. But, you know, there's a cost to us not knowing the truth. And in some communities, those costs are deadly. And we that, that's what this book is trying to get people to understand. It wasn't a moment in time. This is the time, right? It's been the constant threat of this country. And until we acknowledge that, we will always, it will always be the elephant in the room that is also literally holding, I mean, has its, you know, has its fit on us as in terms of who we can be in, in kind of the next iteration of who we are. So uh, I'll stop talking, but I, I had to say that because I just, I'm like I said, I'm just, it, it bothers me that the stuff I teach at USC, I can't teach in my own home state. That's where we are. And instead of fewer states thinking that's a good idea, there are more states thinking that's a good idea. Jen, were you going to say something? I was. I wanted to talk about the capitalism chapter, but I think I think we could wait. I want to sort of sit with what Lavana just said for a second. Yeah. yeah. Can I, okay, can I expand a little bit or maybe respond to Lavana, which this is actually a really good point. Um, it's the stuff that I'm really, really interested in is how, how uh, immigrants get invited into this project and, and what the project actually is. And I think you nailed it, that the project is whiteness. It's a, a specific standard of belonging um, and if we if we get invited in, there's a certain hierarchy that you have to fit into. Um, and one of the things that I'm really interested in is if we um, if we link into the project of whiteness, then I think you're absolutely right that there's this stifling of human um, expression and 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 like that big thing that you you know you were put on this earth and this cosmic world to to do get stifled because of the system that we participate in. And I'm totally with you on that. And I'm really interested in how um, I'm looking at it through the lens of immigrant and indigenous interactions, but how it is that people can be invited into belonging um, outside of this project and actually be able to live those full, big and expressive lives. And I think if, if somebody looks at this book and says, oh, this only applies to African-Americans and their struggle, and I, as, a, as an immigrant to the U.S., you know, a long time undocumented, um, if I don't understand that, the, that our struggles are related and that they're all connected, um, then I, too, am living in a state that, is, that stifles my creativity and stifles the expression of who I am. So outside of being a historian and being an educator, I'm really interested in just how humans relate to one another. And um, I think that's a really important um, thing that we need to take into consideration that this isn't it's framed 
it's not framed this way in the book, but it's framed in American society as a binary. Everything is between black and white, but we're all fitting in here somewhere. Somehow we're asked to link in. Um, and it's about delinking ourselves from those systems of hierarchy and power and white supremacy and understanding my own as a Latina, my understanding my own proximity to whiteness and what I, what I have ascribed to that also limits who I am. Um, I'll stop there because I could just keep going. No, can I pick up on that? Uh, I have very few significant criticisms of the book. I mean, I think they could have edited it a little bit better. So chapter 10 alluded to chapter three, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think some of the redundancy could have been cut out of that. But the one thing that I didn't, that I really wish the book had done in the first chapter in, or in the preface and laid out, and she says it once, but she needs to really lay it out that this is an American story. This is about everybody here. Now, Black Americans are the most oppressed, but you know we live in California where Asians and, and Latinx were oppressed and are oppressed. And, and so there's, there's, a big, there's a really big story in this book, really big story, but there's also an actually even bigger story that I think the book could have alluded to. I don't want it to change. I don't want it in paragraphs or, I just think it should allude early to that bigger story. And she does it sort of casually rather than, than in my opinion, seriously. And I think that that took away from my, I mean, there were moments in the book where I went, wow, you gotta talk about this, right? I mean, you know, Chinese massacre of 1871, right now. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's okay. I get it. Why they didn't do it. I understand. And they're journalists, and I get that. But it would have been really nice. And the second thing is, uh, you know, the chapter on democracy, which we're talking about, there's another piece to the chapter that I thought uh, resonates with both uh, what Havana and Yesenia said, and it, uh, it came through, I think, best on page 33 at the bottom, where basically, and I said it in my summary, but I'm going to say it over and over again, I think, this book is really about Black pride in the face of oppression and Black attempts to progress the society, not Black society, not little local society, the whole damn thing. And I thought that was just, I thought it was the best thing about the book, is that this idea, we're going to understand the oppressive structures of the state, and you're going to get to see them in action in the, in the chapter on, cap on capitalism, the chapter on sugar, chapter on fear, um, you're going to get to see the chapter on race, you're going to get to see them all over the place. But there's going to be this other light, light motif of people are out there. This isn't a fight that started with and I'm not with George Floyd. It didn't start with Martin Luther King. It didn't start with W.E.B. Du Bois. It didn't start with Frederick Douglass. I mean, this is a fight that's been going on since 1619. And these people just want, as both of them said, to be Americans. I mean, it's such a simple, you know, downright stupid thing that we have allowed ourselves to believe that there are Americans and then there are Americans. To me, it's, uh, since I've been a kid, since I grew up in an integrated neighborhood in Syracuse, New York, I have never understood this. It's made no sense to me. And tomorrow, 
unlike Yersinia, is going to be teaching his class. I'm going to be teaching a class of restorative justice with Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow and trying to help them understand that, you know, this is, this is a struggle, but it's also about joy and about family and about relationships and kinship and ideals. It's just, it, to me, that just came through beautifully in more than one chapter. Yeah, there's a quote on page 34. Um, Enslaved African Americans have been among the foremost freedom fighters this country has ever produced. And once I started thinking about that language, the language of freedom fighting, um, I really loved it. I, re I really thought that was lovely. And it's a thing that this book does repeatedly with language. It turns some language on its head to make you think about things in a way you hadn't before. So plantations aren't called plantations, they're called forced labor camps, which is exactly what they were, right? But we have this whole nostalgia built around the concept of these like gone with the wind plantations, you know? And so by, by changing the language, so rather than, you know, people who are criminal or, or resisting, these people are freedom fighters. And so I loved the, the way language was used um, in this book in that way. And I love that, so much of this story, and especially the chapter on music, I think really, really got me here and the chapter on church as well. Just the, um, the audacity to still feel hope, to have joy, to have love, what really came through beautifully in the book. I think that, I think those are, those are, those are powerful. Those are powerful reminders, right? That, you know, people, in general, just want the opportunity to live and to live free, right? To whatever the circumstance, to be able to maximize their human, human potential. And the reality that just the desire to do that was constantly under attack. Because again, it wasn't so, I mean, it was, um, it was this, this tension right, between I'm working for what you have, right, I'm working for what you say this country exists for, but what you were given freely, I mean, so, so I, I will say that the, I will say the angriest that I got when I was reading the book, the book does do a range of emotions, the angriest I got in this book, I think, was going back to the issue of land. And instead of giving Black people who worked the land, the land, they invited more white people in from outside the country to take the land. You take the land, right? And so, so this idea of, it, and we, we hear over and over about the wealth gap, right? And so the genesis, we have a, we have a fundamental property, a problem with our ability for generations to act as if what we thought was property should have property. And we consistently pass policies to do that, right? And so we're, and now we're, again, it's like for me, it's the blaming. It's blaming people that you told that you can't have for the fact that you now don't have. That's the problem, right? So that's that's what this story is about. It, it is a story of, 
you know, people are avoiding the word resiliency, right? And 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 I I mean I I just don't think it should be so hard for people just to live their lives, right? And that and that's what it was. This this idea that success, it, it, maybe this is the legacy of capital capitalism that everything is seen as a zero sum game, right? If you have, then that means I can have. But if we've got creativity, we've seen what can happen with creativity. Things that didn't exist before have generated wealth. But there was always this fear of, and I and I and I think this is this is kind of maybe maybe this is where I become a conspiracy theorist. It is the fear of justice and people getting what they deserve. That's what's at war here. In in the sense of again, if if it's a zero sum game. And we're saying that maybe black people do deserve reparations, then where are they going to come from? Right. And so since we don't know, we, we apparently it's too complicated for us to know, then we've got to again keep having these conversations and say, well, we gave it a shot. They should have figured it out. And so we're going to go back to those policies that say there's an equal, it's a level playing field. And we're going to let everybody be judged by the you know, content of their character as opposed to the color of their skin. If, they, if we were judged by the content of the, our character, there would be some people that would be out of work. And I won't name names, but they have names. So, Just a real quick, uh, I'll let other people uh, develop it. But the striking thing to me about the, the allow, you know, bringing immigrants in and then giving them the Western, you know, that whole Western lands, uh, um, you know, as an immigrant, not myself, but way, you know, not that far back. I don't think um, I'm not unhappy that that happened. The extraordinary thing to me was the policy that that wouldn't happen to Black Americans. It wasn't just we're going to open this land and let everybody have a shot. It was we're going to open this land and you are not getting a shot. And that's the part that. As I, I mean, I've been reading about this stuff since I was 21, and I still can't figure out how we can justify that as a society. That, you know, the moment that I just shudder every time I read about it is Greenwood, where, you know, you had the Black Wall Street, and let's just burn it all down because, you know, they might get rich. I mean, just like, what is up with that? Yeah, there's a whole sort of stew going on with, and I think it's a Ta-Nehisi quote, Ta-Nehisi Coates quote in the book, which is that racism is the child of economic profiteering, not the father, which I loved. So like racism as an ideology designed to justify the economic abuses of, of people. But then that becomes so deeply ingrained that it almost subverts the, the system. And then, and then the racism becomes a driving factor. So not even just, not even just anger that, that Black people exist in our town, but we can't, have them, we can't have them doing well. We can't have them doing better than we are, right? Like we, we have to maintain our whiteness. And even if we're poor, at least we're white. And that to me is like such a deep, dark seated thread that we see all the way up until today. Like so much of this book actually feels very modern to me in a way that I was like, 
wow. The, the, the capitalism chapter in particular, I'm reading it and I'm, ta- and I'm reading about speculation and the mortgaging of human bodies and, and, and the, the, you know, just like the bonds being, being, you know, leveraged by taxpayer dollars and then are the states going to pay? And I'm like, it, that could be yesterday. That could literally be yesterday. It is. It's, it's the 2008 financial crisis. It's the modern day. And it's the same systems to protect a tiny percentage of powerful and, and wealthy people and their whiteness. And the way we keep everyone else from getting together and taking down that group at the top is because we've said, oh, no, there's hierarchies here. So you're white and that's better, even though you're poor. It's better to be white and poor than to be black and poor. Oh, and for Native people, yeah, we've taken your land, but you're also better than Black people. So like you're, you could be, quote, civilized, whereas, whereas these other people aren't, can't possibly be civilized, right? So it's like all of this generation of hierarchy to protect a system that has a small number of people at the top. And it's just, it's, it's a modern story. And now I'm now I'm realizing it's, you know, it's a, it's a 500 year old story. Aubrey, your face right now. Sometimes I wish we were actually recording video because. <laughs> I know I have a, I have no poker face. Um, no, me either. No poker face. Um, you're absolutely 100% right. Yeah. Um, and there's this section in that chapter, I just want to say one other thing, they really get into the concept of speculation and the culture of speculation that developed during the cotton era that I felt was so apt for, for you know, all of my life, but right now, especially. Um, and that what, what we developed here in the US was a culture, and this is a quote on page 175, a culture of acquiring wealth without work, growth at all costs, and abusing the powerless. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's actually the defining feature <laughs> of our society. Mm-hmm. I, re- I thought that uh, there were lots of chapters that had lots of illuminating things in them. But I thought the most illuminating for me were the capitalism chapter and the sugars chapter. Yeah, I, that really I love laid, that capitalism laid, chapter. laid out the idea of how these people gain power, controlled power leverage power and um it's just it's not something that is typical in a book like this so this isn't a political story it's a political economy story with uh, moral overtones on both sides and then it's also this cultural story which you know comes out in the, the church and the music and other stuff and but those two chapters were just I thought they were devastatingly well written as uh, in the way that they they gathered information that was unusual uh, in most history texts in the United States and uh, portrayed the system. You know, the idea that you you're getting mortgages more and more. What did I, I don't have it right off the top of my head, but more mortgages in Mississippi and Louisiana than you are in, in you know Chicago. Uh, it's just an uh, it's just a complete reversal of how we imagine the power of industrial America. 
Yeah, and the development of what we would consider to be very modern management practices and development of the concept of depreciation and the concept of optimizing productivity and all of these things, which we have sort of been maybe not overtly taught, but we just kind of like think they that must have happened during industrialization. And like most of it, we kind of imagine maybe happened in the post-war era, right? Like once we had computers for doing data analysis and whatnot, but like this goes back to the very beginning in the 1700s, data analysis was being used to quote unquote, maximize productivity on these forced labor camps. And that to me was a like, there, there are parts of this book that I found shocking. And that to me was this, this whole revelation. I was like, this is a fascinating thread, optimizing productivity, which we still do with workers today. Right, all the all the apps that are that are designed to make sure that you're being productive, like every minute of your day for your employer, were actually developed during this period of time. You know, in theory, yeah, it certainly makes Frederick Taylor less important than he was in my education. He's the guy who came up with a lot of the stuff at the turn of the century. Right. I want to go back to to the. I want to go back to brutish museums again. Um, in the way that, um, you know, uh, Aubrey, everybody, you know, Cindy may not know what the British Museum book is about, and your listeners might not either. You might want to just give a quick, you know. Sorry, I, I, uh, I hope it's a book that also, along with this book, wins a million different awards. Um, uh, it is by... Um, Professor Dan Hicks. <laughs> Professor Dan Hicks, no relation. Um <laughs> Uh, yes, Hicks is like Smith, so um, uh, we're not related. Um, about um, the Benin Bronzes and um, what colonialism did and continues to do um, to make money. Uh, I mean, the the most <laughs> the, the sort of direct relationship is that. Uh, the the taking of the Benet bronzes is justified uh, in a dozen different ways, and those those different ways become a mythology. They become an historical narrative, uh, and that is the justification for the British Museum and all these other museums around the world. And he has a whole list of them in his book. If you want to see where they are, um, holding these Benet bronzes rather than taking them back. He also had part of the narrative is this whole idea, and boy, does it play out here. I, I was reminded of that book several times, of the idea of civilization and savagery. And uh, the, the, the white European, or in our case, the white American, as the civilized, even when they do totally uncivilized things like steal the Benet bronzes and kill a whole bunch of people and rape a whole bunch of people and just destroy people, we're still the civilized ones. And those people are savages. And that's why we can do it, because they're savages. Uh, that othering. And so that it really felt very much that kind of narrative that Hicks creates uh, that lasted for 100 years. Yeah, and the theme is the same too, which is that the concept of savage is developed to justify the economic activity that the settlers want to have, that the colonists want. Yeah. They want to be able to extract as much wealth as they can from people and place. And so they come up with a system 
of belief to justify those behaviors. The big difference is that in B'nai, they didn't settle. So it's not a settler colonialism. Right. It's just a extraction. Yeah. And uh, in the U.S., the system became far greater, uh, more pervasive, and uh, more destructive, if you will, um, because it becomes part of this larger structure of, of um, white supremacy. You know, I was really, I want to explore a bit more this idea of capitalism. I mean, I know that there's so much to this story, but I really, I really think so much of it is in this ability to um, only think of profit um, and only think of how to get more and more and more and more. This sort of like, there's never enough. Um, how that you know, over and over again seems to enable this, this terrible behavior, this othering of people. Um, it's just crazy. I mean, it's, we see it so, I mean, it, this story over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, and we're still doing it today. Um, you know, I think there's a tie also between the land back movement and how, you know, we've tried to make things into money that shouldn't be money. Um, people aren't money. People's time isn't money. Land isn't money. You know, these are things that are community that are. Um, but Aubrey, if, if it can't be monetized, it's not real. I mean, that's in the in the U.S. If it can't be monetized, it doesn't have value. Like that's literally the system that we're operating within. It's outrageous. Which is why all of these things are allowed to happen. I don't know that I have a question to that. I just, um, you know, I just think at at some point there's this. You know, we so value individualism that we're willing to give up our own freedom in service of money and and this you know even though we live in this state of abundance this idea of scarcity and how much it also is tied to our our you know this fake but very real idea of race and this buying and selling of people that that just keeps happening is this and the backlash against it is it another step towards progress? Well, I, I would say that the, uh, a lot of that came out on uh, when, for me, on page 180, 180 in that capitalism chapter, when uh, they point out that the lash was a part of the management structure. Yep. Right? Yep. And that... Uh, this idea that violence was not, so, I, I love the way the paragraph begins. There is some comfort, I think, in attributing the sheer brutality of slavery to dumb racism. And the rest of the paragraph says, there's nothing dumb about this racism. This racism is carefully calculated to produce wealth. And uh, the violence is part of that characterization of that system that it's part and parcel. In fact, you can't have the system without the violence, without the rape. 
that the system would collapse, actually. And it goes back to that amazing, uh, it's a couple pages earlier, on 176, Orlando Patterson once remarked the slave variant of capitalism is merely a capitalism with its clothes off. And uh, that's why I like that chapter, is I thought it really tore away the idea that this is simply, uh, to put it in their terms, dumb racism, that this is a, this is a calculation. And as Levana said early on, Jim Crow is a calculation, right? And as Michelle Alexander would argue and does argue in this book, the mass incarceration is a calculation. I mean, these things are not just people are racist. It is that there's someone benefiting from that racism. And the benefits, you know, there's amazing statistics. I'm sorry, I, 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 I actually had to stop for a minute. And in the mid-1830s, 19, New Orleans boasted a denser concentration of banking capital than New York City. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, nobody taught me that. <laughs> and I've read a lot of stuff. And so it's a remarkable thing to think about that inner weaving of violence, which you see all the way through this book, and that capitalism and the way that the two are are impossible to pull apart. Yeah. Yeah. And how legal and policy decisions over and over and over are, are setting up the structures by which that can happen, right? So you mentioned earlier, David, about matrilineal descent of enslaved people, right? So that the children of an enslaved woman were enslaved and uh, it got rid of the four, four enslaved peoples, the, the British style of, of patriarchal descent, right? Which white people were subject to. And what it did was incentivize, specifically incentivize the violence and rape of enslaved women because their children then were property. And so like these things that, that you could look at as distinct moments in time, are all braided. I loved that word, Yesenia, that you used before. They're all braided together and they show how from the very beginning, the legal decision, policy decision is designed specifically to support the economic structures and the social structures that allow for this massive, massive wealth accumulation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that's, um, that's what's so critical, I think, for, for people to understand and th- this idea that... Um, it's not an accident that when we have a conversation about racism, we want to, people want to talk about an individual, the one bad apple, or I'm not a racist, I've got, you know, people of color that are that are my friends. It's easier to dismiss a person than it is a system and a practice, right? And to an infrastructure that says, it's designed to get exactly what we have, right? Further, I mean, the the greater concentration of wealth in the fewer fewer hands, right? The the um this the the myth, right? David talked about the the, the whole issue. I, I don't know if it was David or uh, Yesenia, but this this whole idea of our uh, love of the individual, our, our rugged individualism. To the to the degree that our rugged individualism, uh, you know, doesn't, um, you know, won't prevent me to 
prevents me from doing the right thing when I could be making people sick with my individual decisions, right? And so time and time again, we it gives us the justification for not thinking about what do we do in response? How do we do some type of corrective action when we've got these kind of cumulative decisions that have kind of locked in these kind of relationships over time. And the mythology, there's so many myths at work. And one of those myths is that, you know, if you work hard enough, you too can be a, a billionaire, right? When all the data shows us very clearly that if you're born rich, you die rich. And if you're born poor, you've got a greater chance of born, you know, dying poor. And so we have these risks, these myths that we use over and over and over again to support the narrative to support the privileges that exist, to su support our willingness to do nothing uh, in terms of a social safety net that is a joke, uh, considered a joke around the world. And it is it's so bare as a safety net in part because again, we don't want to help people who don't look like us. And if the people in power don't look like us then they're gonna pass policies that again, may not support uh, these kind of broader agendas. And so that that came through for me in, in the book, right? The, this idea that when you really did have representation, you could see that it made a difference, right? When you had people that lived it, talk about what we should do to make it better, it made a difference. But again, all too often we had these shifts where again, power was re, I won't say um, concentrated in the hands of a few, Gains were dismissed overnight through bombings or whatever, lynchings, whatever. And that constant tension between, I think Ibram um, Kendi talks about really this, this constant tension between are we going to go forward or are we going to go back? Are we going to embrace, you know, different voices or are we going to do everything that we can so that we sing with one voice and that voice is white. And so in the, the in the conversation about progress, I mean, that is that is what the book is really for me all about. I mean, it, it has always been, and I can remember when we had, when I had a chance to talk to um, uh, Mullen and Darity about their book, From Here to Equality. I mean, I, I talked about, you know, this, this kind of uh, the tyranny of almost, we almost made the right decision. We almost got on the right trajectory and it was always falling back to the status quo that benefited the same. And so th this kind of moment that we're in, do we recognize, I mean, people talked about a reckoning, a great reckoning over the summer, two summers ago. I don't know if people are talking about a great reckoning right now. Um, people are saying, you know, what are we going to do to kind of keep the momentum going forward? I think that's the story of this book. To, to David's point, I think he made it earlier as well, that in spite of you being told it's not going to happen, voices saying we're going to we're going to keep pressing the issue. We're going to we're not going to let you deny our humanity. We're not going to let you deny our citizenship. You're not going to deny. We're not going to let you deny our right to thrive, even though time and time again, it's made harder than it needs to be. And so that's that, that kind of cycle that plays over and over and over again. I think um, I'll quit talking because again, I'm getting a little agitated. So no, it's somebody. so good. <laughs> so good, Lavana. It's it, that chapter on progress by Ibram X. Kendi was so interesting because it's, it's the exact thing that I hear from most white liberals to be totally transparent, right? Is like, we've made so much progress. You know, it's the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I love that that they gave us the, the actual quote that the, 
Martin Luther King Jr. statement is based on, but this idea of like racial progress, one step forward, one step at a time, baby steps. And yet historically what we have is baby step and then knock, knock you guys down the stairs, right? And then baby steps and then knock people down the stairs. And that the reason we're still talking about baby steps is because there is a constant pushback every single time. And that, that narrative, the mythology of racial progress is actually a thing that prevents us from creating true equality because we trick ourselves into believing that we're making progress just one step at a time. And it, that, I, it resonated with me, but it also it was really disheartening because <laughs> because everything we, we think everything has to happen in baby steps, right? And then and then when you're faced with like well, the baby steps don't work, and the, the task is actually to restructure an entire 400-year-old system, <laughs> then the question is like, how? How? Right. And if we can't even get people to face the reality of that 400 year old system, then how can we get folks to be willing to change it? And I think one of the things that the book does really well for me, um, and I could really see myself um, using some of these chapters in my teaching because they're so accessible um, and so rich, like the textures of the of people's everyday life and the stories of people's lives are so rich in these stories. And they're effective because we're not just hearing the impacts of policy, but we're actually hearing the stories of real lives, real people and how they're impacted. Um, and so each, I feel like each chapter did that really well. There's a story, there's a person you can connect to, um, you know, you fall in love with or you hate or you have some sort of feeling, but you get from that story the sense of the policies that are impacting that um, individual in everyday life. And I think that that's where we get stuck is that um, this system impacts the everyday. It impacts our social interactions. It impacts the way that we view the way that we view ourselves, the way we're invited into and then allowed to see ourselves through the lens of whiteness and through the lens of white supremacy um, without really understanding what the policies are in the background. And so I think that that's um, each chapter is really effective in that way is that it gives us both of those views um, and can help us maybe to answer the what, the how, what do we do next? It's really in the policy that shapes the everyday and really in the everyday that helps us to see how we can impact policy. Yesenia, what kind of, which of the chapters did you like best? Well, I think the chapter that I enjoyed the most, um, there were two of them. The, the one that I really enjoyed was the music one. Um, and I was, I actually listened and read the book. I don't know if you guys did a little bit of both, but um, it really helped me to listen to the chapters. And I loved being able to hear um, the author's voices really articulating their articulating their work. Uh, but I was on the treadmill when I was listening to the music one and the church one. Those are just, they, they told me so much about the the things that I know about African-American um, history that is related to music and kind of, you know, put all of those pieces together for me. So those were really enjoyable. But the one that I probably read more than once, or I did read more than once, was Tia Miles' um, chapter on Indigenous interactions. And this is a good time for me to kind of um, just give a shout out to uh, Jeffrey Osler and Carrie Jacoby, who wrote a really interesting article recently was just recently released called After 1776. And they articulate their work um, as 
a companion to the 1619 project. I'll send you guys this chapter because it's really great. Um, really talking about the other, um, you know, the other founding sin of uh, genocide and settler colonialism that I think needs to be discussed in tandem. Havana, favorite chapter? One of your favorite chapters? Really? I didn't. Six I didn't. <laughs> I didn't have a. I didn't have a favorite chapter, but I did have a favorite poem, if you will, because I. I mean, I. And that was we as people, um, because it's like we're people, but we're treated like animals, and we're treated like animals, and we expect the people like that treat us like animals to treat us differently and how frustrating that cycle can be. Right. And so it's like, and it's like, it's like we are the people, even as we acknowledge that, and I'm, it's on page 211 and 212. And it's like, even as we acknowledge that we recognize that our freedom, our hope is in us. And so that to me was, I mean, that, that is for me, the, the what, what summarizes this, this body of work that it is, we constantly battle other people's assessments, expectations, and predictions about us. But at the end of the day, what really matters is what we say about us and what we do collectively to uh, kind of embrace that. And so that that to me was kind of, um, again, you, you talked about how it was a, a uh, a story of black power, uh, black pride, or black power, or black resiliency, or black truth. That to me was was in just two pages. The the whole story that it really is a um, we have done everything that we can that we could to demonstrate that we are worth respect and dignity. And it's like even if nobody else gives it, we've got to give it to ourselves. And so how I interpreted that, and I think that was for me. Um, kind of what brought all the pieces here. I, I enjoyed all of it. I'm, I'm not. I, um, I'm not. I probably wouldn't make a lot of money as a book critic. Um, but you know, anytime I read the, <laughs> that, I read the story of again uh, new information about my people and the 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 country. Again, if I, I'm, I'm an American, I just happen to be a Black American, right? And so th- this idea that uh, because I'm Black, I'm not American, as does as Mitch McConnell would have me believe, I was like, I mean, saying the quiet parts out loud. And so I think that's what's different, right? We have lost, I mean, this is not new, obviously. We've got hundreds of years worth of the story, but there's a there seems to be an amplification of the discord and the division. And, you know, um, you guys should have figured it out by now that I think this book is a reminder that's like, you're not going to tell me that I'm crazy this is the reality of it. And I want other people to know that this is it. This is not something, this is not some fiction I created to explain my circumstance. It's like, I want you to understand. I want you to look at this again, take the magnifying glass off of other places and put the mirror on us so we can see ourselves and maybe, you know, make the types of changes that are necessary for us to be a more just society. Eloquence. That's what we love you for, for one of the things. Um, I will say, to go back to Yusinia's, uh, that page and a half of names in the music chapter, it's, you know, I started, I, did, I didn't have it on audiobook, but I listened to it as well. 
because I went to my Sonos and said, okay, I want to listen to this. 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 Right? Because it reminded me of how much of my life and I think America's life has been shaped by the names on that page. And this is not just that page. I mean, there's other pages. The uh, incredible way that we uh, get reintroduced to Frederick Douglass uh, as a politician, I thought was really well done, and others who came up during the entire uh, thing. I I didn't love all the chapters equally, but then, you know, uh, that's me. (laughs) But I thought there were a remarkable number of them that worked extremely well. Uh, that, that always comes as a surprise to me in a big edited book that you get this many, cha- you got 18 chapters and like for me, like 15 or 16 of them, 14 or 15 of them really worked well. That's incredible. Uh, having edited a book, not this big, thank God. Um, and so uh, in that sense, I thought it was really great. I did love the music chapter and as i said before i love that the sugar chapter i thought was just so devastatingly evocative of the use of the of the capitalist system but also of that violence you see me i was gonna see if jen had a favorite I <laughs> I keep talking about it i think my favorite was that was the capitalism chapter i think because it was actually the chapter that had sort of held the most surprises for me and the most threads that kind of started to come together. And I was like, Oh, so, you know, it's one of those things where a lot of the other chapters had bits and pieces that I knew and the, the, the chapters made points and drew connections for me that were deeply important. And I did learn a lot from many of them, but that, but the capitalism chapter, I think is the one where I sort of had a revelation about our society (laughs) and the way it functions and why it functions the way it does. Um, And some of my favorite quotes, actually, there's a quote about freedom in the capitalism chapter that I thought was great because of the way that Americans like to talk about the concept of freedom. And I'd love to read it real quickly if if we have a moment. Um, It's on page 184. Um, And they're talking about, this is when white yeomen had lost their farms, but at least they still had their whiteness. This had the effect of making all non-slavery appear as freedom as the economic historian Stanley Engerman has written, quote, it was a freedom that understood what it was against, but not what it was for, a malnourished and mean kind of freedom that kept you out of chains, but did not provide bread or shelter or a means to get ahead. It was a definition of freedom far too easily satisfied, a freedom ready with justifications and rationalizations as to why some were allowed to live like gods while others were cast into misery and poverty. A freedom ready with the quick answer, hey, this is a capitalist society, a capitalist system, and capitalist rules. And capitalism rules. Yeah. Based on the worst of us, essentially, you know. Um, And I think maybe that's the thing that's heartbreaking is that knowing that there is so much beauty and love in the world and yet knowing that we have a system that harms so many and causes so much suffering just for the the wealth creation for a few 
you know, like that, that's like a big thing to sit with and, and feel. So since we're going to, I gave you my uh, favorite poem, this is since we're reading texts that kind of resonates. And again, I think this is, this is me because I, this is where I feel I spend most of my time. Um, And it's on the, it's in, it's on page 439. It's like the arctic of the moral universe is indeed long and as Obama observed, it is, it doesn't bend on its own. The people bended toward justice or injustice, toward equity or inequity. The long sweep of America has been defined by two forward motions. One force widens the embrace of black Americans and another force maintaining or widening their exclusion. The duel between these two forces represents the duel at the heart of America's racial history. The myth of singular racial progress veils this conflict and it veils the snowballing racism behind black people today still weathering the highest unemployment and incarceration rates and the lowest life expectancy and median wealth compared to other racial groups. Until Americans replace mythology with history, until Americans unveil and halt the progression of racism, an arc of the American universe will keep bending toward injustice. Because I think that is, again, it is, when people talk about the battle for the soul of the country, that to me is the battle. Again, it's like, you know, do we acknowledge this as kind of um, going back to part of our origin story that again, is part of also the present reality. I mean, one of the things about the book that I thought was uh, compelling was how many great quotes there are from uh, historical figures and from contemporary writers. I did like, I thought it was a very nice thing to insert the poems and the short stories. I mean, uh, I mean, I read Sold, Sold South like three or three times, I think, because it was just such a, you know, a brutal moment. And uh, some of the poems I thought were really gorgeous. Uh, I'm not going to try and read one, but there was a lot of really beautiful stuff, I thought, all the way through the book. So it wasn't just, and I think this is important for readers. I mean, this isn't a book that's trying to, it's, it's a book that's trying to whack you over the head probably, but it's not trying, it's trying to do it in a sweet way. Um, it's, it's, not a, it's not a polemic in the sense that people have portrayed it as, I don't think. Um, it really tries to get at the issues um, uh, that are essential, central to the kind of stuff that we're working with here. And so um, just a lot of nice stuff, a lot of nice stuff. Yeah, the, the poems... I, I would agree with you, David. The poems and the the these beautiful kind of breaks in between chapters were so important, um, especially because I was listening to the book. It was really important for for me to kind of have that sila moment where you're just kind of resting with and leaning into what you just read or listened to, um, and then to identify. Um, I don't know. We keep saying, you know, the beauty, the joy the hope uh, that comes through, that kind of seeps through the, 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 the things that are set in relief is that there's still all of this beauty 
um, and beautiful ways, even though we're looking at traumatic, um, our traumatic history and our traumatic past. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate it. There's also some really beautiful music in the audio version. So oh, I'm sure it is. Uh, just to pick up on that a little bit, you know, I, I, over Christmas uh, uh, with two friends from Atlanta, my wife and I drove to the Legacy Museum and Memorial um, in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, the image, the one thing that was surprised to me is there's no charts. There's no, you know, it's like, it, it's all text. Uh, I, I thought it would be more visually compelling. But then you get these photographs every once in a while and you're reminded about exactly that. You see, you know, the, the, whether it be oral or um, visual, that power of that moment where you just uh, stop and look at the person. I, I, I mean, I have the one in front of me that's on page 275 of that remarkable photograph. But there's one other that I really liked in front of inheritance is on 293, it's actually on 292 of the couple uh, looking at the camera, uh, ready to go out. And it, it, it comes back to the Levana's thing, right? I mean, this is a book about, about oppression. It's also a book about joy. And it's a book about persistence. And we will not allow ourselves to be defeated. And uh, I thought the photographs did a really nice job of doing that. And then the stories as well, including the last poem, which I thought really worked very well, which is too long to read. Yeah, you know, David, I went to the um, Equal Justice Initiative Center in Montgomery as well, like right before the pandemic started. I had a work trip to Alabama in in like February of 2020. And it was my last, it was like my last trip before COVID. And I got a rental car and I did the whole Selma March. I went to all the memorials. I went to the, um, the lynching memorial. And that was a very, very meaningful trip. I think anybody who has the opportunity to go should go there because there is a kind of learning and a kind of education that can only happen like in place. And it's, it feels so much differently when you get to touch a thing or feel a thing or see a thing that you've read about. And so I would just, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys loved it too. I mean, as much as you can love a place like that, it's, it's a strange thing to say about a place like that, but there's something very powerful about it. And if any of our listeners ever have the chance to go, I highly recommend it. Uh, we would as well. It was extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, the Legacy Museum particularly is a remarkable achievement. Yeah. The memorial is stunning and stunning. scary and downright frightening uh, when you start looking for your county yep. in the north and realize that, you know, where my grandparents grew up, there was a lynching mm. in Ohio. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's just this, this sense that Everybody has, oh, this is Alabama, Mississippi, maybe Georgia. That museum, just like, forget it, baby. This is America. Yeah, and there's this beautiful wall that has running water down yeah. it when you kind of get down into the depths. And the concept is that we can't possibly know all the people who suffered in this way. We just, we have the names of those that we were able to identify in this water sort of represents like this unknowable feature of our history. And I just, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to cry right now. It was really, really powerful. 
then on the other side, you know, they've actually, people have gone out and gotten uh, soil from underneath the trees where people were uh, lynched and brought it back to the, to the, to the space. And, you know, so it's water. So, I mean, this is, this is elemental stuff we're talking here. Yeah. So I have a great uncle in that museum. Yeah, I know. Have you been able to visit Lavana? I brought you back a t-shirt. Yeah, not yet. Not yet. But I say I will. And I said, I appreciate um, the I appreciate the chance to talk about the book. And I hope that something that we said will make, uh, will make other people want to um, read it because blissful ignorance is an oxymoron. It causes harm. And we should not want to cause harm because we don't know, particularly when we can know. And I think that is, that is what's driving this. I mean, what 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 bothers me is that someone feels like it's okay for them to define what was the intention of somebody else's work. Right? It's like I I always think about Colin Kaepernick. I'm I'm taking a knee for you know, violence against black people. And someone says you're disrespecting the flag. And that's the narrative that got lifted up. And that's what this is about. Who gets to tell the story? And for that story to be believable and have traction and not just, again, uh, a momentary blip. Yeah, I know we're right near the end here and and I'm sure everybody's getting a little tired, but I do think it's important that we recognize that this book is an anecdote to the anti-critical race theory kinds of um, ad, ad hominem attacks because it gives you so much information and power to be able to talk about this stuff. Um, I do want us to be careful, though. This book didn't start the attack on critical race theory, nor the backlash that has that has uh, been in place. I mean, this is a, con- I mean, we, we've been, I've been alive a long time and uh, what makes backlashes is progress. What makes backlashes is change because people get scared. And uh, we have made some baby steps forward and people are scared. And the book becomes, I think, an icon of that fear rather than the, the reason for that fear. The fear is in how people are living and the society that we have that's not able to do what it needs to do for lots of Americans. But I agree with a lot. It was great to read, and I think everybody should read it. It's not easy. It's a long book. It's a dense book. It's a hard book. It's an emotional book. It's a terrifying book. But it is definitely a book that people should read. Any last thoughts? I just want to thank Aubrey for always being so open and welcoming on all of these podcasts that we've done over the years. So thank you to Aubrey. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and huge, huge thank you to David and Lavana and Yasenia for being wonderful wonderful co-guests and always broadening my world. And I just love these conversations that we can have together. 
I will see about finding ways that we can continue to do this <laughs> because I love you all and I love learning along with you and from you. So um, thank you. This was a big, big book. I appreciate you taking all the time and um, I am going to be rereading and rereading and rereading this book. Uh, I don't think that, that all of it is in my brain yet. So thank you all. All right. So uh, that is our episode. Um, look for me on Twitter and we will see if we can do um, a spinoff podcast. I think that we might do um, either on my own or uh, perhaps in conjunction with uh, the Difference Engine or in conjunction with um, the Price School in a different way. We'll see. Um, I am Aubrey High on Twitter. Um, and keep an eye out. Uh, thanks so much for supporting our conversations, for joining us on this journey. I've learned so, so much, and I really appreciate uh, everyone who's been a part of this project. Thanks.